Well, as Dusty mentioned earlier, next week is Easter, and I'm sure that you know that. But uh, tomorrow's also a very special day. Maybe you didn't know that. Uh, tomorrow is tax day. So uh, you're welcome. Yeah, in case you have forgotten, uh, tomorrow is April 15th, so it's tax day. Some of you, if you're getting a refund, I'm sure that you filed like months ago. You've already taken care of it. Uh, I had to pay this year, so if you're like me, you might be procrastinating until the last minute. Maybe you forgot until just this moment. Uh, So I'm doing you a favor. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you're like, no, I didn't forget. I'm just waiting until the last possible minute, and you've still got like 36 hours, something along those lines. Uh, I was thinking about uh, that old phrase this week, uh, only two things in life are certain. One is death, and the other is taxes, right? They are an inevitability, uh, we say. A friend of mine was like, man, I just wish I could afford to pay somebody to file my taxes, right? I wish I could, could pay an accountant to file my taxes. And, you know, the thing to me is I was like, I don't actually mind filling out the paperwork and filing. What I wish is that I could find somebody to pay my taxes for me. I wish that I could find a person who would step in and and actually take care of that obligation on my behalf. There's this story, some of you have probably read it, in the the New Testament where Jesus owes a a tax, right? And you remember his disciples come like, hey, we've got to pay the poll tax to Caesar. And Jesus is like, all right, I want you to go out. You go fishing. You're going to pull up a fish. And inside the mouth of the fish, you're going to find a coin. And you use that to pay all of our taxes. So every April... I look for my fishing poles, and uh, up to this point, I've had zero luck finding a fish that would pay my taxes for me. Right? Taxes are an inevitability, and, and as we say, so is death, right? Now, you, you're probably not going to find somebody to pay your taxes, right? But when it, be, when it comes to the obligation of death, the reality that all of us owe a payment to death, when it comes to that reality, actually the scripture is a little bit more optimistic for us. Right, Because all of us, unless Jesus comes back first, all of us are going to die. And the Bible says all of us deserve death. Right, We all owe death. We're going to die. Right? But there's good news in the Scripture, and the good news is that we have a substitute. In Jesus, we have somebody who stepped in to pay the penalty of death. Now, you, you're still probably going to die physically. Right? But what Jesus did is he steps in and he is a substitute for us. He takes the eternal penalty of death. Right? As you look at the scripture, what you're going to see is that death is, is this huge concept. It's not just that my body is going to cease to function one day. But what death is, ultimately, is it is an eternal separation from God. Right? Death at its, at its root is the idea of separation. When I die, my body and my spirit, they're separated from one another. If I am not in Jesus Christ, then what happens is I am separated from God. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve uh, received the curse for their sin, God had told them, on the day you eat of the tree, you will die. Right? But as you, as you read the text, they didn't drop dead that moment. Okay, but what happened? They were separated from the presence of God. They had to leave the garden where they could see God's presence and talk with God. But as we look at the scripture this morning, we're going to see that we have a substitute. Somebody who steps in, says, I'm going to take the payment of sin. 
the penalty you have earned. We're going to talk about this concept this morning of substitution, that Jesus took our place. And the passage we're going to use is from Matthew chapter 27. We're going to look at the life of one man, a man named Barabbas. Some of you are familiar with the life of Barabbas. Some of you may not be. We're going to look at the life of Barabbas, and what we're going to see is just like us, Jesus was a substitute for the life of Barabbas. So what we're going to see this morning is that in many ways, our life story mirrors that of Barabbas, right? In some very powerful ways, our life story mirrors his. So that by the time we get to the end of the morning, my hope is that we will walk away in awe of the reality that Jesus took our place when we were on death row and we walked free because he went to the cross. That's what we're going to see in Matthew 27. So if you've got a Bible, follow with me. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to him, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. I want to zero in this morning then on why we're like Barabbas and why that's both bad news and good news. Why it's bad news for us and it's good news for us for eternity. So I want to look at a few correlations then this morning between us and Barabbas. Right, we are like Barabbas, first of all, because we are also guilty. Okay, Matthew, and really all of the Gospels, they don't equivocate on the question of Barabbas' guilt. When you read about Barabbas in the book of Mark, in fact, it says that he is an insurrectionist and a murderer. Now, what had Barabbas done? Almost certainly, Barabbas uh, was like a freedom fighter. Okay, if you think about the, the Jewish people, they were under the thumb of the Roman 
Empire. They hated it. They didn't have really their own land. They were ruled ultimately by Caesar. So every so often you would have uh, these men who would rise up and they'd say, we're going to overthrow the Romans. We're going to establish a Jewish government. Right? At certain points in their history, in fact, they had been successful in overthrowing their oppressors. Right? So who's Barabbas? Barabbas is a guy who through violence promises his people, look, if we all fight, we can win. We can bring a kingdom to the Jewish people through violence and force. And in, in the process, Barabbas kills some people. So he's arrested by the Roman government and he's placed in jail. But there's no doubt Barabbas is guilty. He deserves the penalty that he's earned. But what's interesting is a lot of people would not have thought Barabbas was a criminal. Okay, there, there were Jewish people that probably thought he's not a criminal. He's a hero. Okay, now what's interesting is in the, in the text here, in, in some of your translations, Barabbas' name may actually be called Jesus Barabbas, right? So you have Jesus who is called Christ and Jesus Barabbas. That's because there are some old manuscripts that, that call Barabbas by this name. Now what's interesting is, I think that's actually probably the original reading of the book of Matthew. That name was probably pulled away later because somebody felt uncomfortable with this criminal having the same name as Jesus. Right, but you know what the name of Jesus means. Name of Jesus means what? God saves. Right, so, so on the one hand in this passage, here you have this guy, Jesus Barabbas, and he says, hey, God's going to save us. How's he going to do it? Through the sword. We're going to grab a sword. We're going to take the Romans. We're going to set up our kingdom. On the other hand, you have this guy, Jesus, who is called Christ, who says, yeah, God is going to save, but he's going to begin inside the nation of Israel and inside your hearts to transform you into the people who can be the kingdom of God. And so Pilate says, which way do you want? You want the way of Barabbas, the way of violence and force, or you want the way of Jesus the Christ? And Barabbas isn't the only one in this passage then who's guilty. Because the leaders of Israel say, no, we want Barabbas. We want force, we want violence, we want power, we want control. And the people rise up and they do the same thing. And in fact, they say, let, let Jesus' blood be on us and on our children. They accept the guilt for rejecting their Messiah. And Pilate, Pilate is guilty. Right? Pilate stands and he says, I'm innocent. And he tries to wash his hands clean of the death of Jesus. But it's not washed away that easily. So everybody's guilty, but nobody thinks they're guilty. I don't know how many of you used to read the comic strip Family Circus, kind of just a cute little comic strip about family life. And if you ever read that comic strip back in uh, really the 80s and 90s is, is roughly when I think they stopped drawing them. But uh, th there, was, there were these characters that would pop up uh, over and over again whenever the kids did something wrong. You may remember, and I don't know how well you can read that from here, but the mom, she's holding a broken plate. She says, I think I know the answer, but I'll ask anyway, which of you broke my good plate? Right? You see the four kids, but then there are some characters next to them. There's, I don't know, not me, and nobody. Right? And those characters show up everywhere. Right? Every time the kids do something wrong, it's not me, or it's nobody, or it's I don't know. Maybe you've experienced that in your own home. Whose water bottle is this? Who left it half drunk on the counter? There's six of them. Nobody. Not me. Not mine. Right? Nobody thinks they're guilty. Or if we know we're guilty, we won't admit it, will we? 
the people in our story this morning, Barabbas, the Jewish leaders, the people of Israel, Pilate, they don't think they're guilty. They're like us. And the reason we don't think we're guilty is we, we compare ourselves to the people next to us rather than to the standard of God. But every time in the Scripture somebody encounters the presence of God, they realize they're guilty. I was reminded this week of Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah was a pretty good guy, by the way. He's a prophet of God. You'd consider him a righteous guy. But in the presence of God, he says in this Hebrew word, woe, it, it is what it sounds like. He goes, oh, woe, I'm guilty. All of us are guilty. Romans chapter 3, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Ultimately, what, what Paul is saying is the more we try to do the right thing, the more we realize we're incapable of consistently doing the right things for the right reasons. No matter how good you think you are, you're guilty. All right, so Pilate says, I'm going to wash away the guilt. And we say that a lot of times too. I, I can get rid of this. I can do this. Right, but it doesn't come off. Barabbas is guilty. We're guilty. James chapter 2, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. No matter how good you are, if you've stumbled in one point, you stand before God as a lawbreaker. Just like Barabbas. We're guilty. Secondly, like Barabbas, our punishment is death. Our punishment is death. Barabbas is, again, he's, he's on death row. From a spiritual standpoint, the penalty for sin is death. Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, I said this at the beginning, but biblically, death is a broad concept. It's not just that your body dies. Your body dying is merely a symptom of a much deeper reality. And that deeper reality is that you are destined for an eternal separation from God because of your sin. And so am I. Wages, think about wages, it simply means what you are owed. Romans chapter 5 says through one man, that is Adam, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. 
When Adam sinned, that set in motion a chain of events where death enters the world because of our sin, and then we all sin, and we all find ourselves guilty, and we all find ourselves headed for death. All right, so just like Barabbas, we're on death row facing both physical and spiritual death for eternity. It's, it's no more nor less than what we deserve. I have a confession to make, and that is that this weekend I was, I was pulled over uh, by a police officer for exceeding the speed limit. Uh, I happened to be near my house, and they were uh, aggressively patrolling a particular stretch of road near my house. And uh, I, I really, I have several um, caveats in my mind for why I was exceeding the speed limit. I don't know if you'd like to hear them. Maybe you would. <laughs> They've been rolling around in my mind all weekend long, right? Uh, First of all, I thought the speed limit was, was 35. I legitimately did. And uh, it, w- it turned out it was 30. Now, he, he clocked me at, at 39, um, even though it was 35. So I was only going, in my mind, four miles, just barely, just barely over the speed limit, right? I mean, just barely. And uh, he pulled me over. And uh, I will say, he exhibited toward me a biblical quality, the quality of mercy. He gave me a warning. And he said, do you know what the speed limit is? And I said, it's 35, right? He says, no, it's actually 30. And I go, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I thought it was 35. And he goes, you were going 39. I go, okay. Uh, (laughs) Just barely, man, right? But he let me go. He gives me a warning. Now, here's the thing. If I had gotten the actual ticket, if I had gotten a ticket, I I would be be thinking this morning, man, just like you probably, it's not fair, right? I'm I'm not that bad. There are actual criminals out there in the world doing evil things, right? But the ticket is no more nor less than what I would deserve, right? I broke the law. Maybe not in as egregious a way as somebody else, but I broke the law, right? I earned the penalty. Scripture says we're all guilty. You may feel that you're guilty by a little. You may know that you're guilty by a, by a mile. But the penalty is death. And so like Barabbas, we sit on death row, facing a penalty that that we we don't know how to deal with. And so in steps Jesus into our story. We're guilty. Our punishment is death. But in Jesus, we have a substitute. Jesus is the substitute that we need. Now, I'm going to talk in just a few minutes about some of the, the details of Jesus substituting himself for Barabbas because there are some things in this passage that I think are, are going to blow us away. But for the moment, let me say this. When Jesus steps in as a substitute for Barabbas. He's stepping in to a biblical pattern of substitution that works its way through the Old Testament, really from the, from the very beginning of God's people. Some of you may remember, if you go back to the story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham, really the father of the Jewish people, God promises Abraham, he says, hey Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to build a nation. You're going to have a son. That son is going to be the father of of more children than the sand on the seashore, more than the stars in the sky, right? So Abraham and Sarah, his wife, they wait and they wait and they wait for decades, They're extremely old. He's a hundred years old when Isaac is born. 
And then one day God says, hey, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son you love. You know that one? And Abraham's thinking, yeah, there's, there's just one, right? Go up to Mount Moriah and kill him as an offering to God. So Abraham gets up early in the morning and, and he and Isaac go up and Isaac, like a lot of kids on the way, he's asking questions. What are we doing? What's going on? Hey, dad, you've got all the stuff for the offering. Where's, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the offering. Remember, they get up on the mountain and, and he binds Isaac and he grabs that knife and his hand goes up and then the angel of the Lord says, no, Stop. And in the place of the boy, God provides a ram. Abraham walks over and there's a ram caught in a thicket and he takes the ram and he offers it as a substitute in place of his son. So we see this pattern of substitution. You see it worked into the feasts of the nation of Israel. Remember what happened on Passover as the people of Israel had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years and God says, I'm going to set you free. And, and so there are 10 plagues on the nation of Egypt. You remember the 10th one is God says, hey, every firstborn son in Egypt, all the way from the, the lowest slave, all the way up to Pharaoh's house, every firstborn son is going to die. The angel of the Lord is going to come through. And after this happens, they will let you go. But he says, in order for your sons not to die, not to incur the wrath of God. Here's what you need to do. You got to take a spotless lamb. You remember, you got to take a lamb and you, you kill that lamb and you take the blood and you're going to paint that blood onto the doorposts of your homes. And when the angel comes by, he will pass over. He will pass by your house because the lamb is a substitute. You ever wonder what it means when Jesus walks up to John the Baptist and, and John says these words, John saw Jesus coming to him and says what? Behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says Jesus is that Lamb. He's the ultimate Passover Lamb who substitutes his life for ours. First Peter would put it this way, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, Jesus as our Passover lamb. And then the third illustration of substitution is the Day of Atonement. You may remember uh, one of the uh, high feasts of Israel was the Day of Atonement. We call it Yom Kippur today, if you have any Jewish friends, right? Yom Kippur. And on that day, what would happen? The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would make offering for the people's sins. In fact, there were, there were usually two goats used on the Day of Atonement. One was a goat that they would, they would sacrifice, and they would sprinkle the blood over the Ark of the Covenant, and that goat was a sacrifice for the sins of the people. All right, but then they would take this other goat, and he was called the scapegoat. You may have heard that term before. They would take the second goat, and the priests would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat, and it says he would transfer uh, sin of the people onto that goat, right? Any sin you're unaware of, any sin you don't know about, and then they would send that goat off into the wilderness to carry the sin of the people away. Right Now, uh, over the years, they learned that they needed to deal with that lamb in some more aggressive way, because they didn't, or that goat, because they didn't want it to wander back, right? And so they would go push it off of a cliff or help it move in that direction. 
Now, what's interesting is the author of Hebrews says Jesus did what? He offered a sacrifice for us. And you know what he did? It says he suffered outside the camp. Jesus serves as both coats. He takes all our sin, and he dies in our place, and he does it outside of Jerusalem, separated from, from the holy of holies. And we see even at the death of Jesus, the sky goes dark, and he says, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? We, we sang about it a few minutes ago. The father turns his face away because the weight of the sin of the world is on Jesus. And so Jesus becomes that substitute. The problem with the Old Testament substitutions really was they never offered a permanent solution. Right? They never offered a permanent solution to the problem. A, a, a ram, a goat, a bull, whatever it was, could never take away sin permanently. Hebrews chapter 10, but in those sacrifices, what is there? There's a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's a temporary remedy. It's a covering up rather than a taking away. It doesn't wash the stain clean. It merely puts a drape over it. A couple of months ago, we got some new carpet in our house. I've told most of you, because we had a little flood in our home, we had to replace the floors. Uh, we got this, this great new carpet. Uh, about two days after uh, we got the carpet, uh, one of our dogs uh, was walking around the house and happened to grab a can of blue hair dye that one of our children had left uh, on the floor. Uh, bit into the hair dye, and uh, one of the kids came in and goes, Mom, Dad, there's a problem. <laughs> and I go into the room, brand new carpet, and it's blue. All right, so I grab some water, and I kind of, you know, I'm trying to scrub it, and I go, oh, man, this is not coming out, at least not easily, right? So you've got a few options at that point, right? You, you can, you know, keep trying to scrub it out, keep trying to clean it. You could eventually replace it, right? Or you just say, let's throw a rug on it forever. <laughs> right? We'll just cover it up. No one will know. Right now, what's the problem with that? I, I will know. We will know that the stain isn't gone. Now, I don't want to keep you in suspense. We were able to get it cleaned, and it came out. Right, but but the, the rug over the stain, that's what we see in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Ultimately, God says, I'm going to let you toss a rug over the stain for a while, but not forever. And as we work our way through the prophets, we begin to see a hint that we need a greater sacrifice. We need a permanent sacrifice. So we, we look at Isaiah chapter 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Isaiah prophesies a day that is coming when a Savior will arrive 
who can take away all the sin? Why is Jesus a better substitute than the rams and the goats and the bulls? One, simply because he's human. In order to take away the sin permanently, you need a man in place of men, a person in place of people. He's a human being like us. Morally accountable before God like us. And yet also Jesus is divine and eternal. He is God in the flesh. What does that mean? Not only can he offer a sacrifice in kind, but he's the only one that can offer an infinite sacrifice for the sins of the entire world because he is God in the flesh. He is eternal. He can offer a once for all sacrifice for sin. This is why the author of Hebrews would say, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, that is for eternity, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. I love this imagery. Think about the end of your day, the end of your work day, maybe even after all the kids are finally asleep. And what do you do? You go find that chair, right? And what do you do? You sit down. And maybe you've got, like me, one of those recliners, the little footstool pops up. And your feet kick out and you go, now I am done. Right? That's an ancient image. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus finishes the work and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And he goes, where's my chair? Bring me my footstools. Let's make a footstool out of all of my enemies, out of death and sin and Satan. I'll pop my feet up. Because the work is done. Because a divine and eternal king makes an infinite sacrifice. One sacrifice for sins for all time. Jesus is human, he's divine and eternal, and then thirdly, he's perfect. Remember, even in the Passover, you had to have a spotless lamb. And Jesus is a perfect, spotless, sinless lamb. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus is a perfect, spotless lamb. All right, so like Barabbas, we're guilty. Our punishment is death. Jesus is our substitute. So what I want you to do for just a minute as we close, and you can, you can close your eyes, you can keep them open. This, it may help you. Just, I want you just for, for just a minute, imagine your Barabbas. Okay, just imagine your Barabbas. All right, you, you have committed a crime. You are guilty. There's no appeal process for you. You're headed to the execution. Now, now here's what I want to say is it is likely, okay, I can't prove this, but it is very likely that in those days, because the soil outside of Jerusalem was, was rocky soil, that your cross was already prepared, right? So they would have gone ahead of time. Pilate uh, would have loved to execute Jewish criminals on one of their high holy days on Passover. That's the kind of guy he was, just to poke him in the eye to say, look, here's who's in charge. You have this great leader. You think he's going to take over Rome? Yeah, let me show you. On your feast day, I'm going to stick him up on a cross on this hill right next to Jerusalem, right? So you've got this guy, Barabbas. His execution is ready. They probably would have pounded the upright into the soil a day or two ahead of time. Who knows how long Barabbas has been on death row, right? But for a while. We know also that there were two other guys crucified on that same day. 
Right? The scripture tells us they were also insurrectionists. Same word that we see for Barabbas. So you have three insurrectionists about to be crucified on the same day. Probably all three of them are involved in the same rebellion. Now, well, why do I bring this up? Because the, the likelihood is this, that the, the uprights for the cross were already nailed in. There's three crosses already sitting there. The prisoners, uh, unlike a lot of the images that we tend to see, the prisoners would grab just the cross beam, right? That was all that they would carry up the hill. So when it says Jesus couldn't carry the cross and somebody else stepped in for him, it would have been the long cross beam that they're going to nail to the upright, right? So imagine that. Your cross is pounded in. You're ready to die. You're going to die. And then the guard comes in, opens the gate and says, you're free. Well, what happened? Well, overnight, somebody else came in, another prisoner. Remember, Jesus wasn't arrested till Thursday night. His name is Jesus. He thinks he's the Messiah. He thinks he's the king of Israel. And, and you, you know that tradition, right? One of you gets to go free. And the people said, hey, send Barabbas for some reason. Send him out and, and, and not Jesus. So you're free. Go on. So imagine you're Barabbas. What do you do? I'll tell you, and I don't know, we don't, this is, we don't know what Barabbas did after that. He disappears from the story, but I'll tell you what I would do. I'd get in that crowd and I'd go see what's going on. Now, I want you to imagine you're Barabbas for a minute now, and, and you're, you're following this crowd up to Golgotha, where these men are about to be crucified, and what you see is this man, Jesus, right? And he's carrying your crossbeam. And then they get to Golgotha and they put that cross beam up on your upright. And this man, Jesus, is nailed literally to your cross. Right, the cross that was set aside for you. Imagine you're Barabbas then. What do you do? Uh, again, I don't know, but I, I got to think that he told that story a lot for the rest of his life. Hey, you'll never guess what happened to me. So there I was on death row. And Jesus died where I should have died. I don't know. Maybe he didn't know what was going on. Maybe he, he never really understood it. But, but we do. Right? Because like Barabbas, we're guilty. We deserve death. Jesus took our cross. So how do we respond? How do we respond? First of all, trust him. You know, as, as Dusty mentioned earlier this morning, I know that at this time of year, uh, some of you, you, you may have walked into church and you haven't, you haven't been here since, since last year. Maybe you're here for the first time and maybe you, you really don't don't know Jesus. And the message of, of the morning and the message of the next couple of weeks is, is to understand what Jesus has done and believe it, that you're guilty, just like all of us are guilty. And you need a Savior who can take away the penalty of eternal separation from God, who took your cross, and then next week we'll celebrate. He rose from the dead so that we have eternal life. If you have not trusted him yet, if you don't know that you believed in Jesus 
and what he accomplished to save you from your sin. Please come talk to me this morning or talk to a friend who maybe you came in the room with, any of our welcome volunteers with the name tags out in the hallway. Don't leave until you know that you've accepted what Jesus has done, that you've believed that he died for your sin and rose again. Secondly, thank him. Each day this week, just make it a discipline. Just say, God, thank you. Thank you that Jesus took my cross, that Jesus took my place. And then thirdly, again, I got to think Barabbas spent the rest of his life telling this story. Tell the story. In your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your family, this is a time of year where I think people are more receptive to talking about Jesus than maybe any other time of the year because they want to know what we're celebrating. So tell the story. Who are the people you're praying for? Who are the people you're thinking about that you say, that person needs to know what Jesus has done? And this week, maybe, maybe you begin to tell the story. Maybe you say, hey, come with me to my church next week. You'll, you'll hear the whole story. You'll get to see what we celebrate. Maybe it is you just begin a conversation. You say, I want to tell you, I want to tell you what happened to me when I was on death row. And the gates swung open. And somebody took my place. And he took your place. So will we tell the story? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, it's just a, a powerful, powerful reminder every time, every time we talk about it that Jesus took our place. Father, we praise you that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we no longer have to dread eternal separation, eternal death away from you, but we look forward to eternal life. And that is why we sing. And that is why we worship you. And that is why we want our lives to reflect you. And so we pray that they would. Lord, thank you for this time. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.